Part two of chapter four of a chronicle of the Pontiac War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti. Part two of chapter four. From day to day, the Indians kept up a desultory firing while Gladwin took precautions against a long siege. Food was taken from the houses of the inhabitants and placed in a common storehouse. Timber was torn from the walks and used in the construction of portable bastions, which were erected outside the fort. There being danger that the roofs of the houses would be ignited by means of fire arrows, the French inhabitants of the fort were made to draw water and store it in vessels at convenient points. Houses, fences, and orchards in the neighborhood were destroyed and leveled, so that sulking warriors could not find shelter. The front of the fort was comparatively safe from attack for the schooners guarded the river-gate, and the Indians had a wholesome dread of these floating fortresses. About the middle of the month, the Gladwin sailed down the Detroit to meet a convoy that was expected with provisions and ammunition for Fort Schulzer. At the entrance to Lake Erie, as the vessel lay becalmed in the river, she was suddenly beset by a swarm of savages in canoes, and Pontiac's prisoner, Captain Campbell, appeared in the foremost canoe, the savages thinking that the British would not fire on them for fear of killing him. Happily, a breeze sprang up, and the schooner escaped to the open lake. There was no sign of the convoy, and the Gladwin sailed off for Niagara, to carry to the officers their tidings of the Indian rising in the west. On May 30th, the watchful sentries at Detroit saw a line of Batum, flying the British flag rounding a point on the east shore of the river. This was the expected convoy from Fort Schulzer, and the cannon boomed forth a welcome, but the rejoicings of the garrison were soon stilled. Instead of British cheers, wild war-hoops resounded from the Bitou. The Indians had captured the convoy and were forcing their captives to row. In the foremost boat were four soldiers and three savages. Nearing the fortress, one of the soldiers conceived the daring plan of overpowering the Indian guard and escaping to the beaver which lay anchored in front of the fort. Seizing the nearest savage, he attempted to throw him into the river, but the Indians succeeded in stabbing him, and both fell overboard and were drowned. The other savages, dreading capture, leapt out of the boat and swam ashore. The batu, with the three soldiers in it, reached the beaver, and the provisions and ammunition it contained were taken to the fort. The Indians in the remaining bateau, warned by the fate of the leading vessel, Landed on the east shore, and marching their prisoners overland past the fort, they took them across the river to Pontiac's camp, where most of them were put to death with fiendish cruelty. The soldiers who escaped to the beaver told the story of the ill-fated convoy. On May 13th, Lieutenant Abraham Collier, totally ignorant of the outbreak of hostilities at Detroit, had left Fort Schulzer with ninety-six men in ten bateaux. They had journeyed in leisurely fashion along the northern shore of Lake Erie, and by the 28th had reached Point Pelee, about thirty miles from the Detroit River. Here a landing was made, and while tents were being pitched, a band of painted savages suddenly darted out of the forest and attacked a man and a boy, who were gathering wood. The man escaped, but the boy was tomahawked and scalped. Collier drew up his men in front of the boats and a sharp musketry fire followed between the Indians, who were sheltered by a thick wood and the white men on the exposed shore. The raiders were Wyandots from Detroit, 
the most courageous and intelligent savages in the region. Seeing that Collier's men were panic-stricken, they broke from their cover, with unusual boldness for Indians, and made a mad charge. The soldiers, completely unnerved by the savage yells and hurtling tomahawks, threw down their arms and dashed in confusion to the boats. Five they succeeded in pushing off, and into these they tumbled without weapons of defense. Collier himself was left behind, wounded, but he waited out and was taken aboard under a brisk fire from the shore. The engines then launched two of the abandoned boats, rushed in pursuit of the fleeing soldiers, speedily captured three of the boats, and brought them ashore in triumph. The two others, in one of which was Collier, hoisted sail and escaped. The Indians, as we have seen, brought the captured boats and their prisoners to Detroit. Cuillère had directed his course to Sandusky, but finding the blockhouse there burnt to the ground, he had rowed eastward to Presquille Isle, and then hastened to Niagara to report the disaster. The siege of Detroit went on. Towards the middle of June, Jacques Baby brought word to the commandant that the Gladwin was returning from the Niagara with supplies and men, and that the Indians were making preparations to capture her. A few miles below Detroit lay Fighting Island. Between it and the east shore, Turkey Island, here the savages had erected a breastwork, so carefully concealed that it would be difficult even for the keenest eyes to detect his presence. The vessel would have to pass within easy range of this barricade, and it was the plan of the Indians to dart out in their canoes as the schooner worked upstream, seize her, and slay her crew. On learning this news, Gladwin ordered cannon to be fired to notify the captain that the fort still held out, and sent a messenger to meet the vessel with word of the plot. It happened that the Gladwin was well manned and prepared for battle. On board was Collier, with twenty-two survivors of the ill-starred convoy, besides twenty-eight men of Captain Hopkins' company. To deceive the Indians as to the number of men, all the crew and soldiers, save ten or twelve, were concealed in the hold to invite attack. The vessel advanced boldly upstream, and at nightfall cast anchor in the narrow channel in front of Turkey Island. About midnight the Indians stealthily boarded their canoes and cautiously, but confidently, swept toward her with muffled paddles. The glad one was ready for them. Not a sound broke the silence of the night as the Indians approached the schooner, when suddenly the clang of a hammer against the mast echoed over the calm waters, the signal to the soldiers in the hold. The Indians were almost on their prey, but before they had time to utter the war-hoop, the soldiers had come up and had attacked the savages with bullets and cannon-shot. Shrieks of death arose amid the din of the firing and the splash of swimmers hurriedly making for the shore from the sinking canoes. In a moment fourteen Indians were killed and as many more wounded. From behind the barricade the survivors began a harmless musketry fire against the schooner, which simply weighed anchor and drifted downstream to safety. A day or two later she cleared Turkey Island and reached the fort, pouring a shattering broadside into the Wyandot village as she passed it. Beside the troops, the Gladwin had on board a precious cargo of a hundred and fifty barrels of provision and some ammunition. She had not run the blockade unscathed, for in passing Turkey Island one sergeant and four men had been wounded. There was rejoicing in the fort when the reinforcements marched in. 
this additional strength in men and provisions it was expected would enable the garrison to hold out for at least another month within which time soldiers would arrive in sufficient force to drive the indians away in the meantime pontiac was becoming alarmed he had expected an easy victory and was not prepared for a protected siege he had drawn on the french settlers for supplies his warriors had slain cattle and taken provisions without the consent of the owners leaders in the settlement now waited on pontiac making complaint he professed to be fighting for french rule and expressed sorrow at the action of his young men promising that in future the french should be paid acting no doubt on the suggestion of some of his french allies he made a list of each of the inhabitants drew on each for a definite quantity of supplies and had these deposited at melchie's house near his camp on parents creek a commissary was appointed to distribute the provisions as required in payment he issued letters of credit signed with his totem the otter it is said that all of them were afterwards redeemed but this is almost past belief in the face of what actually happened from the beginning of the siege pontiac had hoped that the french traders and settlers would join him to force the surrender of the fort the arrival of the reinforcement under collier made him despair of winning without their assistance and early in july he sent his indians to the leading inhabitants along the river ordering them to a council at which he hoped by persuasion or threats to make them take up arms this council was attended by such settlers as robert navarre zachary sicotti louis campo antoine collier francois melon all men of standing and influence in his address to them pontiac declared if you are french accept this war belt for yourselves or your young men and join us if you are english we declare war upon you the gladwin had brought news of the peace of paris between france and england many of the settlers had been hoping that success would crown the french arms in europe and that canada would be restored some of those at the council said that these articles of peace were a mere ruse on the part of gladwin to gain time robert navarre who had published the articles of peace to the french and indians and several others were friendly to the british but the majority of those present were unfriendly Secourt told pontiac that while the heads of families could not take up arms there were three hundred young men about detroit who would willingly join him these words were probably intended to humor the chief but there were those who took the belt and commenced recruiting among the fellows the settlers who joined pontiac were nearly all half-breeds or men mated to indian wives others such as pierre renume and louis campo believing their lives to be in danger on account of their loyalty to the new rulers sought shelter in the fort by july four the indians under the direction of french allies had strongly entrenched themselves and had begun a vigorous attack but a force of about sixty men marched out from the fort and drove them from the position in the retreat two indians were killed and one of the pursuing soldiers who had been a prisoner among the indians and had learned the ways of savage warfare scalped one of the fallen braves the victim proved to be a nephew of the chief of the saginaw chippewas who now claimed life for life and demanded that captain campbell should be given to him according to the pontiac manuscript pontiac acquiesced and the saginaw chief killed campbell with a blow of his tomahawk and after cast him into the river campbell's fellow-prisoner mcdougall along with two others had escaped to the fort some days before 
The investment continued, although the attacks became less frequent. The schooners, maneuvering in the river, poured broadsides into the Indian villages, battering down the flimsy wigwams. Pontiac moved his camp from the mouth of Parents Creek to a position nearer Lake St. Clair, out of a range of their guns, and turned his thoughts to contrive some means of destroying the troublesome vessels. He had learned from the French of the attempt with fire-ships against the British fleet at Quebec, and made trial of a similar artifice. Betrill were joined together, loaded with inflammable material, ignited and sent on their mission, but these fire-ships floated harmlessly past the schooners and burnt themselves out. Then, for a week, the Indians worked on the construction of a gigantic fire-raft, but nothing came of this ambitious scheme. It soon appeared that Pontiac was beginning to lose his hold on the Indians. About the middle of July, ambassadors from the Wyandots and Potawatomis came to the fort with an offer of peace, protesting after the Indian manner, love and friendship for the British. After much parleying, they surrendered their prisoners and plunder, but soon after a temptation irresistible to their treacherous natures offered itself, and they were again on the warpath. Amherst, at New York, had at last been aroused to the danger, and Captain James Darrell had set out from Fort Chilser with twenty-two barges, carrying nearly three hundred men, with cannon and supplies, for the relief of Detroit. The expedition skirted the southern shore of Lake Erie until it reached Sandusky. The Wyandotte villages here were found deserted. After destroying them, Duliel shaped his course for the Detroit River. Fortune favored the expedition. Pontiac was either ignorant of its approach or unable to mature a plan to check its advance. Through the darkness and fog of the night of July 28th, the barges cautiously crept upstream, and when the morning sun of the 29th lifted the mist from the river, they were in full view of the fort. Relief at last. The weary watching of months was soon to end. The band of the fort was assembled, and the martial airs of England floated on the morning breeze. Now it was that the Wyandots and Potawatomis, although so lately swearing friendship to the British, thought the opportunity too good to be lost. In passing their villages, the barges were assailed by a musketry fire which killed two and wounded thirteen of Dariel's men. But the soldiers, with muskets and swivels, replied to the attack and put the Indians to flight. Then the barges drew up before the fort to the welcome of the anxious watchers of Detroit. The reinforcement was composed of men of the 55th and 8th regiments, and of twenty rangers under Major Robert Rogers. Like their commander, Daliel, many of them were experienced in Indian fighting and were eager to be at Pontiac and his warriors. Daliel thought that Pontiac might be taken by surprise, and urged on Gladwin the advisability of an immediate advance. To this Gladwin was averse, but Daliel was insistent, and won his point. By the following night all was in readiness. At two o'clock in the morning of the 31st the river gate was thrown open and about 250 men filed out. Heavy clouds hid both moon and stars, and the air was oppressively hot. The soldiers marched along the dusty road, guided by Baby and St. Martin, who had volunteered for the work. Not a sound save their own dull tramp broke the silence. On their right gleamed the calm river, and keeping pace with them were two large Betul, armed with swivels. Presently 
As the troops passed the farmhouses, drowsy watchdogs caught the sound of marching feet and barked furiously. Pontiac's camp, however, was still far away. This barking would not alarm the Indians. But the soldiers did not know that they had been betrayed by a spy of Pontiac's within the fort, nor did they suspect that snake-like eyes were even then watching their advance. At length Parrot's Creek was reached, where a narrow wooden bridge spanned the stream a few yards from its mouth. The advance guard were halfway over the bridge, and the main body crowding after them when, from a black ridge in front, the crackle of musketry arose, and half the advance guard fell. The narrow stream ran red with their blood, and even after this night it was known as Bloody Run. On the high ground to the north of the creek a barricade of cordwood had been erected, and behind this, and behind barns and houses and fences, and in the cornfields and orchards, Indians were firing and yelling like demons. The troops recoiled, but Dalyell rallied them. Again they crowded to the bridge. There was another volley and another pause. With reckless bravery, the soldiers pressed across the narrow way and rushed to the spot where the musket flashes were seen. They won the height, but not an Indian was there. The musket flashes continued and war-hoops sounded from new shelters. The Betrul drew up alongside the bridge, and the dead and wounded were taken on board to be carried to the fort. It was useless to attempt to drive the shifty savages from their lairs, and so the retreat was sounded. Captain Grant, in charge of the rear company, led his men back across the bridge while Dalyell covered the retreat, and now the fight took on a new aspect. As the soldiers retreated along the road leading to the fort, a destructive fire poured upon them from houses and barns from behind fences and from a newly dug cellar. With the river on their left, and with the enemy before and behind as well as on their right, they were in danger of being annihilated. Grant ordered his men to fix bayonets. A dash was made where the savages were thickest, and they were scattered. As the fire was renewed, panic seized the troops. But Dalyell came up from the rear, and with shouts and threats and flat of sword restored order. Day was breaking, but a thick fog hung over the scene under cover of which the Indians continued the attack. The house of Jacques Campeau, a traitor, sheltered a number of Indians who were doing most destructive work. Rogers and a party of his rangers attacked the house, and pounding in the doors, drove out their assailants. From Campeau's house, Rogers covered the retreat of Grant's company, but was himself in turn besieged. By this time the armed bateau which had borne the dead and wounded to the fort had returned, and opening fire with their swivels on the Indians attacking Rogers, drove them off. The rangers joined Grant's company, and all retreated for the fort. The shattered remnant of Dalyell's competent forces arrived at Fort Detroit at eight in the morning after six hours of marching and desperate battle, exhausted and crestfallen. Dalyell had been slain, an irreparable loss. The casualty list was twenty killed and forty-two wounded. The Indians had suffered but slightly. However, they gained but little permanent advantage from the victory, as the fort still had about three hundred effective men, with ample provisions and ammunition, and could defy assault and withstand a protracted siege. In this fight Chippewas and Ottawas took the leading part the Wyandots had, however, at the sound of firing crossed the river, and the Potawatomis also had joined in the combat, in spite of the truce so recently made with Gladwin. 
At the Battle of Bloody Run, at least 800 warriors were engaged in the endeavor to cut off Dalyell's men. There was rejoicing in the Indian villages, and more British scalps adorned the warriors' wigwams. Runners were sent out to the surrounding nations, with news of the victory, and many recruits were added to Pontiac's forces. End of chapter 4 Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com